Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio-podcast. Hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists... Today on The Microscopist, I'm joined by Ra Chu, Professor of Bioengineering and Microbiology and Immunology at Stanford University. And we discuss his groundbreaking work in cryo-EM and his future research goals. So my ambition is, is somewhat modest but practical in the sense that I want to understand the organelle in the cell. Yeah. Okay. Now every you know, cell biology thought they know organelle because that's what the textbooks teach them. But I don't think we really do. We discuss his awesome approach to mentoring students. I think the fun thing being a professor to have an opportunity to interact with the students, I think that's the funnest part of the job. Uh, so, you know, because I feel the important thing is to learn from the students through their questions. That will inspire my way of thinking. We also delve into the potential future of microscopy in this field. That is the current state of art, but there, of course, there are many yet to be developed technology that I would say a five years from now, some of these would, uh, these pictures will be replaced by another pictures. Bigger, mm-hmm. more expensive, most likely, uh, maybe even taller. All in this episode of The Microscopists. Hi, welcome to The Microscopists. I'm Peter O'Toole from the University of York, and today I'm joined by Wa Chu from Stanford. Wa, how are you today? Very well, indeed. Thank you. Good morning. Yeah, Yeah, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Afternoon, yeah. Uh, (laughs) uh, Thank you for joining me today on this. I've got to say, I've seen you talk uh, not that long ago, actually, but I was also Strongly encouraged to talk to you on a more personal note, sir, from the likes of Lucy Collinson, uh, who, who are big fans of your own. Uh, I, 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 where to start? Actually, I'm going to ask, what, what was your first degree? You're known for your structural biology, your biological studies with electron microscopy. But what was your degree in to start with? OK, my first degree is in physics. And then at that time, when I finished my first degree, I was thinking, what do I do in the rest of my life? And in those days, I was only pursuing what would be exciting to do. I wasn't thinking about money or position. I'm just thinking, what's the next thing exciting to do? And uh, that was during the Vietnam War era. So every student at that era start questioning the relevance of their studies or whatever they're doing. So I thought maybe I want to solve the cancer problem. So that was my really naive way of thinking. And that's why I said, okay, then what do I do if I want to solve the cancer? Since I'm not a biologist, so maybe something I call biophysics. And then that's what I get into biophysics as a graduate student. That. So, so, so my PhD was also in biophysics, and there's a big difference between physics and biophysics. So that's a huge jump between the two. How did you find that that transition? Okay, so it's interesting because uh, turn out most of the faculty in biophysics at University of California, where I attended graduate school were physicists once upon a time. And so as we saw, their emphasis was always in the physics principle in solving biology. So they place more emphasis on the physics aspect of the biophysics than the biology aspect of biophysics. So uh, as we saw, my whole upcoming in that training was thinking more, you know, what can I do understand biological system using the physics principle. So that's where I come from. And, and then, of course, I need to make up all the things I did not know. So I took all the courses in cell biology, molecular biology, and genetics, and the like. So that's that's my exposure in biology. I would say 
my biological background is good enough to me to be a professor in bio X and Y, but I'm not really a carrying biologist. <clears throat> so if you had a choice and you could only do biology or physics, which would you choose to do now? I think it would be a good idea to do the physics to start with. I think that gives you a quantitative background and analytical backgrounds, and then you do the, and then you pursue the biology. But I would have to say the the world of biology also changing, so there could be some undergraduate program maybe more integrated, because now I encounter some of the undergraduate students at Stanford. Those guys are really sophisticated. <laughs> they actually they not they know enough physics and they know enough computing and they also know the biology. I think that are the that are the future of of integrated biology. I think the future biology I was considered to be integrative biology that would encumber what we believe for a long time, but now it manifests in a different way. Physics, chemistry, and computing, mathematics, and biology. Yeah. So on that front, reflecting on it, I guess biology is is something that you do need chemistry, physics, computational, mathematics. They all come together, underpinning any almost all biological biological studies that I can think of. I, I'm struggling to think of an exception where you don't need at least one or two of those skills and appreciation. I agree fully. I agree fully, and so now even in my research, we initially start, of course, from a cryo EM angle to solve the structures. But at the end of the day, after with the structure, we need to understand it. It get me into computing. It get me into really biology. So so, and then I think we can think about a step further. Actually in medicine as well. So in the past, we thought, okay, we write grant, we justify because we will solve problem X and Y. But now I think it's real. I don't think it's a fantasy anymore. I think that integration of cryo-EM and cryo-electron tomography into biology and medicine is real. And of course, we need a lot of computing and AI and also physics based in uh, to make sure what what we are concluding or what we what we are making the models are correct at least chemically correct. So again, we need the chemistry. I mean, one fascinating thing recently, I begin to know that God, I need to go back to learn the organic chemistry myself. You know, that's all the fundamental thing which I learned years ago, but never been used. But now I, you know. I find very fascinating from that point of view. I think I'd find my organic chemistry quicker to pick back up again than some of my maths or physics. I, I, I guess I was, I, I guess biochemistry's degree. Uh, so there's a lot of organic chemistry drummed in yeah. uh, at that point. It, you mentioned computing and simulations. So obviously all your work at the moment is heavily involved with cryo-electron microscopy, but you've, you've got things like AlphaFold which is essentially a computer you can put your sequence in and it, and it will predict the sequence. Do you see a risk of that replacing the need for cryo-EM for structures? Not at all. They need us even more badly <laughs> than ever. Okay. And I, you know, when you think about all the alpha four is, is because the knowledge that the crystallographer have been able to accumulate in the last 50 years. You know, that provide a lot of database about what structure would look like protein X and Y, and that uh, the AI to learn it and then predict it. Uh, so, but at the end of the day, it's important, particularly we talk about chemistry, we talk about the local environment, okay? And need to be precise and it could be changed because the alpha four, I think I understand they can now predict more than you know one confirmations, but exactly which one is correct. Okay. I mean, CSN is simulation. You can simulate using a molecular dynamic to simulate this molecule move from A to B, right? 
but how real it is in terms of function. Keep in mind, the purpose of our research is to understand how things work. And after we understand how things work, we can whether we can manipulate for better or for worse. I mean, that is the purpose. Yeah. That's the way I think about the purpose of research is we understand enough. We can regulate it. We can control it. It's harmful to us and other organisms. Okay. So, but I don't think AlphaFold is, um, is, is, uh, can solve all problem. Now, I would confess AlphaFold become very convenient. If you have an unknown protein, you can predict what that is and you can use that information uh, and then to help you to get the ground truth. So keep in mind, our research is to get the ground truth. So AlphaFold, in most cases, would not give you the ground truth in understand its function in context. And it, it, it is an amazing bit of software. But I, I, at York, as I, I, I mentioned earlier, my office looks out on the new CryoEM building that's there. Uh, so, so certainly we're, we're using AlphaFold, but also... Certainly, our structural biologists are very heavily into their cryo, well, naturally into their cryo EM as well. I've got to ask, I, I, you sent me some pictures, which includes. Uh, hopefully, this works. So, for those who are watching or listening, uh, what the picture is actually showing, uh, I think, an SEM on my one shoulder, but then it's a huge. Well, actually, is it? It's not, is it? But you've got the large. TM, cryo TM as well, which is really tall. I don't think you can appreciate from this picture just how big it is at this point. But what was the first microscope that you used? Okay, my first microscope that I used was a microscope did not exist. Actually, it was made by United Kingdom company called AEI. And I couldn't remember what that abbreviation stand for. And in the old days, uh, the British company, there's a British company make that microscope, a transmission microscope, 100 kilovolt, was a very powerful microscope uh, because a lot of microscopy, microscopy uh, knowledge and foundation was laid by Pioneer at uh, both Cambridge and Oxford, as I recall, particularly in Cavendish lab, which I have the privilege to spend some some months when I was a student there. So I still remember that uh, good time. So, so, but nowadays, uh, the one, the picture on the right um, is where tall microscope is a 300 kilovolt transmission microscope. And that is what most of the high resolution bio EM structure being used to generate the images. And the picture on the left, is a focus on beam scanning electron microscope, which is used to uh, to micro machine a very thick cell in the finna manner so that it can put into the tall microscope to do tomographic data. So, you know, in the next few years, these two instruments are kind of hand in hand. One is more or less a specimen preparation, it's a very expensive specimen preparation device. On the picture on on my left or on your right, and then the other one is uh, to do for the generated tomographic data. That is the current state of art. But there, of course, there are many yet to be developed technology that I would say, a five years from now, some of these would uh, these picture will be replaced by another pictures, bigger, mm -hmm. more expensive, most likely. Uh, maybe even taller. Uh, that's interesting you say that. I, I, uh, I was going to say, because obviously I, I did a podcast with uh, Richard Henderson as well, and he was raving about the 100 kV right. systems uh, right. that uh, Mohamed El Gamati has certainly been right. doing a lot of work with. Right. And uh, I, I'll ask your take on that in more detail after the podcast, obviously. But sometimes. So it, I would be happy to comment on that if you want me to respond to Richard's hypothesis. Oh, go, go on then. Okay. So first of all, 100 kilovolt instrument is a fantastic good instrument. That's all we got started, right? So I started using the 100 kilovolt instrument to image protein crystal at three and a half angstroms and 
collect electron diffraction pattern of protein crystal to 1.5 angstrom. That was done in the in the late 70s, early 80s. So that suggests the physics definitely allows one to get the data of atomic resolution. So what what Richard suggests using 100 kilovolt is not a crazy idea. Okay, and of course he is promoting based on very strong physics base, but the evidence in the literature point that to support his hypothesis, okay? Uh, but I think on the other hand, the single particle, there are two areas, two types of specimen. One we call single particles, small little molecules. Uh, like if you are interested in seeing an RNA molecule of 30 kilodaltons or 40 kilodaltons, and I think that, is, that kind of instrument is well suited, okay? So one of the excitement that Richard recently uh, develop, uh, uh, developing is the, to have a detector that we can collect data efficiently and effectively. I think several years ago, I don't think it is too useful because I worry about the detectors, okay? Because all the detectors are fitted to this expensive tall microscope uh, behind you. But I think now there are a couple of companies, including Richard himself, developing uh, detector can get be able to collect images. So, so all these you know, last few decades, the field hasn't been advanced because the, the 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 microscopes are good, but we cannot collect the data. You know, there's no yeah. medium to collect the data, and 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 also the BME news movement. But now all these technical issue has been uh, gradually ironed out. So I would say this is probably a a viable instrument. Okay. However, what I see the futures of the uh, structural biology, cell structural biology. Okay, right now it's molecular structural biology and definitely uh, 100 kilovolt could do it. Like as I mentioned, small RNA, small enzymes, small proteins, uh, particularly if a lot of drug design area, a lot of these drug target, maybe 50 KD, uh, 60 kilodaltons, and I think 100 kilovolt would definitely will be well suited. That I would agree with. But on the other hand, what I'm thinking of is looking at a bigger area of the whole cell. Now, of course, this very ambitious cell has too much stuff, too big. We can't do it. At least we can see possible cell. So my ambition is, is somewhat modest but practical in the sense that I want to understand the organelle in the cell. Yeah. Okay. Now, every you know, cell biology thought they know organelle because that's what the textbooks teach them. But I don't think we really do. So I think the excitement I would consider will be I consider to be organelle structural biology. Okay. Now, in that case, I think we need these tall microscopes, maybe even taller. Yeah. Okay. That means, you know, because at that time point, I, I'm interested in atomic resolution. I always did, and still do, still do. But I'm interested in a lot of these molecules in the context of cell. So even as sub nanometer resolution or nanometer resolution, I think I will learn a lot, particularly in the context of medicine, in pathologies, in cancer, neurodegenerative diseases, infection biology. I think there's so much. You know, it's just around our fingertip. We can just go to make all the discovery today, next 10 years, full time. Okay. Uh, so, so in that sense, I say, Richard, okay, I agree with you. 100 kilo will be valuable, but I think at a high voltage, like this 300 or even 600, maybe one MeV would have its play in right now or in the near future. Yeah, I, That's I think. I think you've intimated they're addressing different problems. They're looking yep. at different sample types. Uh, and one of the problems I was going to ask you, actually, one of the problems with the instrument behind you is the cost. Uh, it's not easy to get, you know, confocal microscopes have come down in price. You can have multiples of these at most universities. Uh, but the cryo, cryo EMs is not for every university still. Uh, I think I, the reason I was a bit coy with the the 100 KV systems. I know Richard uh, 
talks a lot with Mohammed El Gamati of York Trade Solutions. Uh, I, I, I kind of know them quite well. Uh, Mohammed was on one of my grants applications once. Uh, so, so I didn't want to bias it towards that direction. But I, I think it's a really interesting solution for enabling most universities to get something to do some of the low-hanging fruit, some of the easier. Oh, that easier sounds wrong, doesn't it? I'm going to get into trouble saying that. Uh, some of the that side of the market, smaller molecules. Uh, no, well, I, I I agree with that. I think that will democratize some of these uh, research activity. And the fact is, FEI have been able to sell. I was told over three hundred of this this Creo. Okay, the toy instrument behind you. And the question is, I didn't expect that people would come up with that much money. I don't know where the money come from. So I think in a sense, I'm not too, too concerned about the economic aspects. The fact that, you know, the industry showed me that they're able to sell. And then my colleagues around the world capable of raising all this money. And so I'm less concerned about that. Now think about the hospital at least in America. Yeah. I mean, how equipped they are. You know, they have a CT scan and all this. It will be cost probably as much as this grill. It's no problem. Mm -hmm. And I can't, you know, when Thermo Fisher in a few years ago, they said, oh, they want to make money. They want the farmer to have this kind of instrument. I said, you think too small. You need to think about every hospital in America need one or two or three. Then you're talking my language. If you really <laughs> want to make money. So, so I, I think at least I'm looking from American economy point of view. I'm not, you know, I think it's hard to get the money. Now for people who are interested in doing research or don't want to waste time to raise money, you know, like what I do, you know, I'm wasting a lot of time in managing this at the moment. I think it's a kind of community service the way I look at it. Uh, is that the funding agency, the government, like, like the YPEC over in Diamond Night Source, and I think Leeds to some extent, uh, or maybe in, in Edinburgh, not in Edinburgh, sorry, in Glasgow, and then like in us, in America, the NIH Center. So we set up all these centers, just like the X-ray beam line, right? In the past, nobody can afford the X-ray beam line that really make that... Uh, make that possible. You really revolutionize the whole field in molecular structural atomic biology, right? So so I think then the problem is why people don't want to do that. Just think about the American style of living. Everybody wants to own the car, not only one car, two cars and three cars. They never want to take public transportations. Why? It's a cultural thing, right? So, but other part of the world, they take bus, you know, they walk to the bus stop and they take the bus to work and take the bus home. Mm. So I think the American scientists need to think about that way. They don't, you don't own things, you use things and then you, you, you can, uh, the government would pay you to, to use the thing freely. And I think that once you have the culture shift, then I think we'll be perfectly fine. And so like the place like EPEG and like some of the NIH center, you know, you know, because not just buying the instrument, but getting the people to run it. Yeah, the expertise. Expertise. And nowadays, all the company begin to do it. They pay people, I was told, two, three, four times more. I'm losing people. I'm actually training the people. They go to industry making more money than I do. You know, what can I do? Right? I mean, they want you know, that's the way it go. But on the other hand, what I pull, what I can provide is I consider, our, I'm sure you feel the same way, our intellectual environment, something exciting. We make discovery and we interact with people freely and we exchange things freely and we don't have a boss over me and you, you know, every day, right? So that's what, you know, what that's what we are, we are compensating with, uh, with less pay. So I think, you know, we would just have, you know, like Richard, you know, have even volunteered to work, you know, without pay. You know, these, you know we have these people and I don't worry about it. I, I was having that very discussion, actually, earlier on with a colleague. And we were talking about different posts and how much they get paid in different parts of the country. And if you've got Google right next to you and how much they would pay for the similar type of post. And I was saying, well, so, so, and actually academia is trying to increase the salaries to match. And I, 
And fascinating, someone, again, different conversation with someone else said, actually, we shouldn't be trying to increase our salaries to match that. We should be paying parity salaries to the other academics that Google aren't going to poach or whichever big company isn't going to poach. I'm not picking on Google here at all. Uh, Because actually, those who want to go into science and help, you got into it to help solve cancer. People who are passionate about the science, it's not about the money. Yes, we have to make sure there's a a good salary there. Absolutely. But at the same time, they're not going to be there because they're getting paid more than they get paid elsewhere. They're there because they're getting paid well, hopefully. Yeah. But they're also doing something they're passionate. It's not a job. It should never be a job in academia. It's not a job. I'm still going to school. <laughs> so it, 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 yeah, it, it is. It, it's got to be a passion, hasn't it? It's got to be a. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it but is definitely, like in our area, it's a very volatile because we are one. We are expensive as expensive as living in London or even more. Uh, so it's, it's it's challenging. Just the cost of living is much much higher. So now we are <clears throat> surrounded by the Silicon Valley. Now with Facebook and Google, you know, I mean, it's, it's challenging. Yeah, I, but but I think the best people who want to help will still be there. It, it's just it's, 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 it's the cost. It's the cost of living around it that's going up so much that that makes it yeah more yeah. challenging at that point. Now I I'll. I'll Change subject a little bit. I'll just go back to that previous picture, uh, which was of uh, you, you mentioned public transport compared to having your own car. Well, I would argue you are public transport because you have these instruments that are also used by many, many different people. They're not owning their cry, own cryo EMs. You know, we have our core facility at York, uh, which is now a Eurobioimaging node. So people from all over Europe can come and use that infrastructure. And because they can't or don't want to afford, technology moves on so fast. Right. If you were to buy a car, you know you're going to get five, 10 years, whatever out of it. In this case, it may last two years and something better comes out. And if you're not using the best, your science is no longer cutting out. Right, exactly. And so you started core facilities or or the structures of putting in shared, shared labs of the EMs. When was the first time you? I think you did this back in Baylor, did you? Am I right there? Right. Yeah, it's almost forty years ago. You see, because fortunately, decades ago, uh, NIH has a division that that explicitly fund these uh, cutting edge technologies uh, for technologies that is not yet proven, but through that support to prove that technology to be useful. I mean, the technology, including the X-ray beam 9, the NMR, the mass spec, and then the Yechon microscopies. And before my time, it was uh, the cell biology, the MEV microscope, like uh, Key Porter, I don't know if you heard of him or not, you know, uh, it's a very senior cell uh, structural biology, discovered a lot of things in the cell. And he has a one MEV microscope in Boulder. And the time I came in and I was questioning, you know, those old 1MUV microscope would be useful or not. And some of us, including me on the committee, we thought perhaps a three or 400 kilovolt would be a intermediate choice because they are, at least it can fit in the, the normal, well, a little bit taller ceiling, but not, you know, two-story height. And so, and so NIH, you know, was willing to fund me and a couple other sites uh, to acquire those. And I was only one that pursuing the cryo. And so, and, and, and that is how I get started. So mostly are uh, developing the methodology. When I first started with the 40 Ansom through the year, yeah, from 40 Ansom to now, you know, 1.2-ish some resolution, you know, that took about three, three and a half decades effort. And so so it's not an overnight thing in this kind of activity. So thinking of those three and a half decades of setting up, what's been the best time over that career? Oh, that was a really phenomenal time because, first of all, there was no competition in, for 30 years. I enjoyed that. 
because people <laughs> thought I was crazy. So they left me alone. So I could do what I want and I could do my own pace. So, you know, one of the exciting thing was I was able to use the instrument in Berlin. I helped setting up uh, in Berlin on this superconducting lens microscope. And I was able to get images of protein crystal to, you know, better than four ensom uh, on images. That was that was exciting. And, and, and that work actually, I think, stimulated Richard to move into the imaging approaches. So I think that, to my opinion, is, is I was excited at that time because I went there to do the experiment myself. I helped setting it up. And that was the last uh, instrument made by Siemens Corporation. <laughs> Since then, they company out of the business. And so that was a good one. And then at Beta, I was pushing on a 400 kilowatt microscope. So we decided at that time, we wanted to go on single particle on viruses. And we worked with, I spent a year on sabbatical at the RMB and then get to know a virology in Glasgow and I get involved in working with herpes. Okay. And uh, so Richard is always a very good friend of mine. And so I spent a year with Richard and Tony Calver and RMB. That was probably the most enjoyable year on sabbatical. That was a very memorable time in Cambridge. I, I presume that was, so you sent me some pictures of you and Richard as well, uh, which are here. Yeah. So I presume this was after that period though, or was that during that time? Surely this was after. I think the picture I sent you was after you know, more recent pictures, but yeah. it was, I know Richard when he first, uh, discover the structure of bacterial toxin with Nigel Unwin. So we were back because we were one of the very few people interested in that approach at that time, you know, on protein crystal. So I was, you know, uh, was pursuing protein crystal rather than the single particles. And it was delightful that Richard came to visit me after his prize in 2017. And then the two other people, it happened that they were two senior program officers from Department of Energy in Washington visit. And so they were delighted to be with Richard as well. So that was a really good time. So Richard has been very helpful to me all this year and encouraging me to do things. Uh, and of course, I deviate from the original work doing the protein crystal by Yechon defection, I switched to the single particle. So it was it was not received by the community too well at that time because it was very low resolution. But I'm glad what I did. So I was improving from 40 ansom to 20 ansom to 10 ansom to 9 ansom to 6 ansom and eventually to you know three and a half ansom, uh, uh, four ansoms. Uh, before the uh, so-called revolution. But since I was working on bacteriophages, again, people usually don't pay attention to so-called irrelevant biological object. I wasn't working on sexy membrane protein, right? So, but anyway, but I think for technology, I think it's important to choose the right benchmark molecules so that the technology can lend itself to it. So I, I still... Well, please, what I do, but I think without that, the single particle won't, in my opinion, won't go that far. I mean, I was pushing along uh, that that period. So I think for during the period at beta, I I developed the whole thing from 40 ansom down to four and a half ansom that period. So you said quite nicely that actually the last 30 years have been your best years because you know you were you were you were alone. There wasn't any competition. There's competition now. Because it's it, it's boomed, you know what you've been developing has been proven. Everyone has now caught this wave and surfing it. But take away the best times. What has been the most challenging time in your career to date? I shouldn't say to date because that sounds like you're going to get bigger challenges ahead. What's been the most challenging time in your career? Be positive on this one. Uh, well, I would say I have been really lucky, and I haven't encounter any time that I need to suffer one way or the other. I mean, I was, because I, you know, one of the challenging aspects is how to get people, right? So, but I somehow, I foresee that problem. 
uh, and I foresee it now and I foresaw it in the past. So I prepare for it and I will create my path to recruit people. So I welcome people and many of the people I recruit, you know, people might not recruit to start with, you know, in other, I'm willing to invest on the future. Uh, uh, so I, I think uh, the challenging aspect is to find colleagues who have the same belief in the scientific uh, destiny as I do. Now, I don't want to say yes, man, but I think I want people who have the same goal. But mm -hmm. of course, when you do research, one should have all the degree of freedom to inquire and turn right or turn left or completely say this is that part that we should move on to the next one and things like that. So I think the challenging is actually making the right decision, go and no go in some of the projects. So you sent me some other pictures and it's probably relevant to bring this in now. And I, I think this is a big graduation ceremony oh, yeah. picture. So are you hunting around at this point thinking, who, who am I going to poach? Who's, who am I going to get to come and work for us? Well, I actually, it's challenging way now for me that uh, when I was a beta, I, I know I was in the medical school. I didn't have students, the student that I want. As I point out, I prefer student with physics background. <laughs> and uh, so I create a graduate program at beta. So fortunately, my colleague was kind enough to let me do so. And I, I, I organized not within my school, but also all the neighboring institutions, because in Houston, there are multiple institutions, including Rice University, University of Houston, which they have the undergraduate, they have the basic physics and chemistry and other math and computer science departments. So I network it, we form a consortium. And that's what I leverage my environment to have recruiting students that of common interest to the biophysicist or computation biology. So I was doing quite well. In fact, I, you know, when you asked me about photograph, actually I came up with a photograph, which I didn't post to you, uh, which, you know, something like 40 plus people in the past, you know, many of them are very successful today in uh, holding professorship in multiple schools. So I was really looking forward to that. Now, one of my reasons to move to Stanford, I thought you know that would be an environment that the students should be should be a premium, you know, types of talent that I can tack on. But turnout is tougher than I think to get students at Stanford uh, because somehow the Stanford graduate program run in a pretty restricted way. We mm -hmm. don't accept too many graduate students. And as a result, the supply is very limited and I have no control whatsoever. Now, that's why I still enjoy my freedom in Texas. You know, I say, we need more students. I just hustle for money. I can hustle it and I go to recruit and that would be okay. But in here, I, it's a more traditional institution like York or Cambridge. In Oxford, they have a tradition. I need to follow the tradition. <laughs> and so, so as we saw, uh, I, you know, like the, uh, the picture you saw a while ago, uh, the young students, and he, she's in biophysics, okay? And these students, one of my students graduated, uh, is also in biophysics. So I was lucky to have uh, a, a few students uh, in the last five years, but I, don't see an overwhelming group of students coming. And I also don't see many people calling over to come to work for me neither. So, you know, I can imagine, you know, that people may have more choices these days, number one. And number two, the cost of living in the Bay Area may be too high. And number three, they may think, oh, why still around? I thought he's retired, right? So uh, so the young people may want to work with uh, younger faculty. I can understand that. But on the other hand, I'm still working 24-7. I, you know, I, I'm okay. I survived. So I, I, I was like, you say you work 24-7, but you yeah. must do things outside of work as well. So what, what are your passions? What are your hobbies outside of work well you used, run, I, you used to run didn't you 
Well, I'm sorry. I really don't have anything outside my work. I literally work 24-7, even today. But you used to be a runner. Huh? You used to be a runner. Well, I know, but that is part of work, right? Uh, you know, part of the exercise. I need to keep myself in shape. My only, only period that I do think uh, is taking a walk in the evening. But even taking a walk, I usually have my cell phone. I'm actually talking on the cell phone when I'm walking. So <laughs> that's what I meant. Uh, and so my wife, are not too happy with that. She keep want to take holiday and do things. So we haven't done enough of that, except that once a year we commit that you have a pictures. Yeah. So few 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 months, few weeks ago, I went to London and I visited I visited Richard and others at RMB, but I also went a day in London. I have a lot of relatives. These are my nieces and nephew and their kids in London. So that was fun that day. That was oh, it's, a, it's a very nice picture of, I yeah. guess, your immediate or closer family. But you also sent me, yeah, a, a, yeah. a bigger right. Yeah. So we we decided that we ought to have a holiday once a year. So I have two daughters and I have six grandkids. So this year we decided something simple in Northern California. So we it was in in. By this behind you is the Pacific Ocean. So we did enjoy that week. And so that was a good thing. And in fact, several years ago, we even spent a week in London together. We also enjoyed that very much indeed. So so that was my, yeah, my day off that week. Yeah. And, and I've got to say, you're looking very dapper, uh, very smart in this one. So what, what, what is this picture? Okay, so that uh, during the, the after the holiday, one of the one of the grand niece got married, and so this was in the wedding. That's why we all dress up. Uh, so the 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 ladies next to me is my granddaughter. She she is a sophomore at the university in Georgetown in in England, and the one in the middle is my second daughter. Uh, Andrea, and she lives in Houston. And then the ladies next to her is our niece, and the the far side uh, young lady is my other granddaughter. I have two granddaughters, so they're all in the pictures. <laughs> and in fact, this young granddaughter now they are they, today they are in Philippine. My daughter have moved to Philippine. Uh, for three years so she's now in philippine so i have to show this picture just in case you've missed someone and you, you're name dropping them all and if i miss one out you probably kill me so the the, the one, one final family photo yeah that's fine yeah that was a one that uh that was a farewell dinner after the wedding after well the, the thing is just we arranged in such a way that one week holiday in northern california and then with a wedding event and that was a brunch before we all part. And so that's, we gather everybody. It was another nice restaurant uh, in Emeryville, right next to Berkeley by the, by the bay. And there's a very nice Chinese restaurant. So we're taking a picture uh, in front of that. So that uh, all, the, all the two daughters and their six grandkids, their husbands, and then also my wife's sisters and, and nieces and their family as well. So that's one quick, it's fantastic event that day. So Okay, so, so you were originally from Hong Kong. Yes. Uh, went over to the States, stayed in the States. I've uh, done lots of visiting. We might, might get time to have a look at where you've been visiting. But out of choice, where would you live? Hong Kong, USA? Uh, USA. Okay. So I'm going to go through quick, some quick fire questions. Are you an early bird or night owl? Depends on the days. I sometimes get up at six and, and then I often have a Zoom call at seven because I still have collaborators around the group. Mm -hmm. Lastly, I have a conference call at uh, 8 p.m. because one of my former postdocs 
former student now is a professor in, in North Korea. We're working one of the really exciting paper. So, so that would be his morning. So we start from eight to nine. And tonight I'm going to have a call at 9.30 p.m. with a colleague in Singapore and because I have another colleague in Sweden <laughs> and uh, who is an editor of a journal and we try to put uh, some special events in I call computational biophysics mm-hmm. uh, with my colleague in Sweden and my other younger colleagues in Singapore. So as a result, depends on the day, I could, it could go either way, but I sleep in between. And hasn't Zoom made things easier on that front? Uh, the, the one good thing about lockdown is I think we've embraced it far more than we had before. I, I've got a call, I think, someone from Singapore and Australia on Wednesday, on Wednesday morning, a couple of days. Yeah. And, and yeah, we've all found a time zone that we could all be sensibly awake. Uh, but yeah, early morning, late evening, Singapore got off lightly, I think, on this one. So it's- I agree, but I actually personally did Zoom way before the pandemic. So that was part of my thing because I actually have two offices at Stanford, yeah. one on campus and another at Slack Accelerator. And right now I'm sitting in my office in the Slack Accelerator Laboratory, but I also have lab and office down on campus so you know at any one time depends on the day like like today i have to go down in the afternoon on campus on a symposium symposium for undergraduate presentation so i'll be down on campus this afternoon so i zoom in between so i'll ask you that's the early bird night owl question mac or pc uh mac okay mcdonald's or Burger King? Neither. I knew that was going to be the answer. That's easy. <laughs> if you were to go to a conference, uh, what would be the idea? They take you, are an invited speaker, they take you out for food. What would be the best thing that they could actually serve in front of you to eat? What's your favorite food? Well, I'm actually quite easy. As long as the food is good, it can be any food for any, any kind of cooking. <laughs> It could be Italian, French, American, and Spanish, and uh, Japanese, Chinese. Okay, so the only thing I don't yet can, haven't yet find an exciting meal is an English dinner. I have, <laughs> I, have I, I love the English breakfast. But I yet, you know, because when I'm Cambridge, you know, Richard used to take me to the college, you know, that was good, you know, you know, we're gone to have dinner and, you know, I belong a member of the care hall. So I enjoyed that, that fellowship, but I haven't really, I know there's some really good English pub, but I haven't really know where to go to find it. Maybe I look you up next time when I come. so, So reciprocate the offer where next time you're up, in the UK, come to York and we'll take you we'll take you a few places so I can at least get one that will be right. <laughs> okay, just to get you know train me right. Yeah, so we'll definitely try that. And I'll make sure Lucy Collins and Dan London also knows it. And the challenge okay. is laid. Well, whenever you're in the UK, whoever's hosting you has to find you some good English. It does exist, it really does exist. So I, do, I know, I know it does exist, yeah. So um, but anyway, I, I just need to be having some proper guidance. Yeah. So coffee or tea? Coffee. Wine or beer? No, because I don't have this uh, alcohol dehydrogenase enzyme in me. So neither. Chocolate or cheese? Uh, I don't like chocolate, but I would, I would take cheese. Okay. Book or TV? Neither. I was going to say, you can't, can you? Because you're working 24-7. How are you going to read a book or watch TV? I've got to say, I've never really got into reading books because you can be reading science. Yeah. Yeah, the reason is my eyesight is no good, so I always need to modify food, you know, food the Mac, right? So it's always digital. Uh, So it's... uh, But I, I start printing and try to look at it but it's very stressful to my eye 
And you know, all the all the transatlantic flights, I I always work. I never watch any movie on the long flight. I find it very productive to work on a paper or a grant proposal during the long flight. Yeah. I I was very productive. I guess I I, I would. Uh... I think train journeys in the UK are great for grant reviewing, grant writing, peer reviewing, so forth. I think long haul flights, uh, long haul flights are a great place for a movie. It's, a, it's a, one of the few times you actually get to stop. And you, you're, I'm a captive audience and I'm very, rarely a captive audience. There's always, even at home, I'll get up and move around. There I'm kind of stuck. So I quite like watching a movie on a plane. So you don't would, have a favorite film. That. No, I don't. I don't watch movie. No. Oh, well, that that bang goes that question. I'm very question. boring. I'm a boring guy. <laughs> well, that's not true because that if I look at some of the other photos, you've got friends all around the world, and you have visited uh, on sabbaticals people all over the world. Uh, so, I, where are you in these pictures? It was. It was in Houston in a Robert Welch Foundation conferences, and it's a it's a chemistry foundation. They fund research only for the Texans, and every year they host a a very uh, laborious, elaborate conferences. In that year, that was a conference that Richard turned out to be there, and Jennifer Dunner was there as well. So you asked me for pictures and I didn't realize even I had that picture. I started looking at my cell phone. <laughs> so yesterday I looked for it. I said, God, these are nice pictures. That's why I share with you. <laughs> so on this one, where are you here? Uh, we were in Shanghai, believe it or not. Uh, so uh, the, the one on your right, uh, is uh, uh, Supermanium, used to be NIH, now he's in British Columbia. He, he spent some time with Richard when he was a postdoc. And then on the right, I think is one of the rooms in Kingston, the 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 EMDB, uh, uh, the, yeah, all right, this is the, uh, the UK, uh, the, 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 the European uh, Bioinformatic Institute, not very far from Cambridge. So we have uh, in Shanghai, we have a we have a workshop, and that was in a restaurant. We afterward we took a picture. You know, it's a beautiful uh, high rise in the background, and on the right with all this scholarly, kingly looking environment, we we yeah. thought about the validations of the cryo EM structure. So I have been very active in thinking about procedure to validate uh, the correctness of uh, cryo-EM structures. But uh, you visited extensively for Saudi, Singapore, Japan, uh, UK, Germany, I think as well. Yes, yes. Do you like traveling? Uh, I used to like it, but now it's a hassle traveling. In my last trip to Europe, I spent I spent five cities in 15 days. That was, I never traveled like that when I fought back, but it was difficult. But, uh, but I think I enjoy talking to various people. I spent some time at Oxford and at Diamond and Cambridge and London. So I, and then also in Netherlands, I stopped by three different cities in Netherlands and I visited Fermo Fisher in the Czech Republic. So those are very scientifically, very productive trips. Uh, so, yeah, I I think I learned a lot through the interactions. That's correct. Yeah, and, and I think so. You're, you're saying how you you're learning uh, as you're going on these events, but you also do a lot of not just undergraduate teaching or teaching. You, you also run a lot of courses as well. And you sent me some pictures of, I presume, cryo courses based around the cryoelectron microscopy. In right, right. Before. Uh, and not just physical. So this is, I presume, at Stanford. That's right. That was these pictures were were events before the pandemics, and so we went three workshop a year the, before the pandemic, and so people could come in to to learn. And the speakers, the top one is David DeRose, who is the grandfather of image processing. 
and then and then the one in the bottom is Jose Maria Carrasso from Spain. Uh, and then with one of the JOL manager in America. Uh, so these are taking place in Stanford and the other were the, the in-person attendance. We always assume even before the pandemic, people can lock on for that. Now that's exciting, this one. Uh, these are all my European colleagues uh, from uh, CCP4 uh, uh, experts that they do modeling. So we have them the whole three days workshop uh, in Stanford. I think we have more than 300 participants uh, while they were teaching remotely. They were very successful. Yeah, and, and, and you sent another picture with more people, but I, I yeah, right. Those yeah. are the audience, you know, the snapshots. Yeah, I know. Uh, right, right, right. But those are, the... when you saw that these are the speakers, many of them are are from England. <laughs> so you just need to come over here and run a course. We'll do it at the Royal Microscopical Society and set one up. I'll be happy to. I'll be happy to. Uh, uh, <laughs> a structural prior OEM, and uh, we have courses, but. The RMS, actually, I, I noticed uh, some of your early works, uh, and not, not so, not so, so, even more recent ones, you published in the Journal of Microscopy as well, uh, multiple times. And so actually wearing my Royal Microscopical Society hat, I should just point out that some of those publications are published in there and the authors and co-authors on it are huge names in their own rights now as well. And it's great that you supported a journal that is run by a charity for microscopy and publishing your work in there. So I thought that was, so it's just, I'm wearing another hat at that point uh, from the RMS, but I, I thought that was really cool actually to see on those. Yeah, well, I'm, we may, I mean, we actually writing some paper, the audience are yet on microscopies. We, we will consider that. I mean, because in the old day that was, the only journal when I was a student in those days. Uh, I think now the American uh, microscopy and microanalysis have their own journal, but um, but I always thought the journal of microscopy uh, as a very incredible uh, group of, of uh, editors and they were knowledgeable. So. Yeah, I, I would think about that because the next paper I'm, well, we haven't decided where to submit. I mean, we're still in the drawing board, but you know, I would keep that in mind. Thanks very much for reminding me that opportunity. Well, if you submit that, I think uh, Michelle Peckham, who's now chief editor, is, is going to owe me a drink and that'll be, uh, <laughs> that'll be very good. Uh, but it, it, it is an excellent journal. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. It's modernizing as well. And you're yeah. really stepping forward. The quality of publications in there have gone up markedly. Yeah, I, I'd like to ask a question, if I may, because I remember I was in one of the meeting organized by the Royal Microscopy uh, some years ago. I couldn't remember. It, it, it took place in London. It was, I remember that event, but I couldn't remember the detail of, of the conference. And I often ask myself, how come the Royal Society don't put up more of this event or some of the journal as well, because, you know, in the old day, the Royal Society proceeding was very prestigious. I remember one of the really classic paper by Aaron Crook and others was in that journal, but I don't see that anymore. I wonder what happened to the activity in your society. Yeah, I, I, I can answer that. Uh, so I, I don't know which meeting it was in particular down in London. If it was a larger one, that would have been microsci micro, which became microscience, uh, is now uh, uh, microscopy. It's, it's now MMC, uh, uh -huh. Microscopy uh, Microscopy Congress, which is in Manchester every other year. I see. And, and Actually, scientifically, that's become quite a big program now because it brings in all the physical sciences, material sciences, alongside the life sciences. And there's generally six parallels, but you've got all these synergistic and life and materials together. Right. And, and people can just freely go between them. And I, I find it odd. I, I, I walk into a life, so I'll walk into a life science session 
And I'll see some of my own physicists at York in the same room thinking, well, I didn't know you were interested in this area. So I learn more about them. And likewise, I'll go to the physics ones and hear what they're talking about because the, the relevance and what we can learn from each other. So that's uh, every, I've got, I think now beginning of July, every other year. Oh, really? Ah, okay. uh, so certainly come to it. And the journal, as you say, a lot of journals started to compete, uh, yeah. which made things thin away. But the journal's really going after quality now and, and it's upping its game. Uh, yeah. It's hard. It's a very competitive market out there. And we just need to get the best publishing in what should be the best journal, I think. It's, it's our journey. It's, it, it is the microscopist journal, I would argue. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. So I also work with my material science colleague at Stanford. In the last two years during the pandemic, we started the, the symposium called e, Stanford EMX, and so it's it's a one and a half, uh, one and a half hour symposium. Uh, one talk will be given by biologists, another talk will be given by material science. So my colleague uh, Bob Sinclair, who used to be from a student in in Cambridge years ago, but now he's a a well-known professor at Stanford in material science. So he and I put together this series. It's actually Zoom, but it was really well attended uh, because we try to integrate between the bio and non-bio EHR microscopy together. So, Yeah, I, I, I think it's great. I also like the fact that the exhibition at MMC has all the companies associated with both. Uh -huh. Because again, I... I that actually, the exhibition is probably the most exciting bit. I can read about the science. Right. Actually going around and seeing what the companies have got and companies I wouldn't usually see to get ideas and new ideas. I, I, it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I realise we are over the hour mark already. And I, I, and I haven't got through all your pictures, but there's one which actually I think is above your shoulder as well. This has to be one of the coolest wallpapers you can have as a Zoom background. This is... Yeah. All your, all the various structures of, I think proteins. Uh, we've got uh, viruses, uh, ion channels, RNA complexes. What an image! Thank you. Uh, and again, this is what thirty-five years of work. It's no, no, these are all this. No, this all this work was done within two years since I moved to Stanford. Mm. I mean, 35 years of work has now come together. And yeah. now it's like a PhD, isn't it? You spend three, four years working and then the last three months, everything pops out. That's correct. That's correct. That's right. That's right. That's it right. It's one of the coolest backgrounds. Anyway, what we, we are, I'm really sorry, up to the hour. So actually, everyone who's listened, thank you very much for listening. Do go see Richard's and some of the other podcasts. And Richard Henderson's is also utterly brilliant to listen to and don't forget to subscribe and to whichever various channels but while well, you're brilliant and thank you so much for taking your time I, I know your time is precious you work 24 7 but it is great and I think actually this is a great way if you're listening to this as an undergraduate and you're wondering where, which lab to go to to do a PhD if you're doing a PhD and want to know where to do your postdoc there you go I've just done your advertising for you go, okay. go I hope so yeah, no, I think the fun thing being a professor to have an opportunity to interact with the students, I think that's the funnest part of the job. Uh, so, you know, because I feel the important thing is to learn from the students through their questions. That will inspire my way of thinking, how to explain better or to discover I actually may not understand the thing I thought I understood, right? So, but so I think the teaching and learning is very important of our life as being academicians. Actually, I, I, I know we just finished the podcast. I've got to ask the question though before we close off. Do you find sometimes it's the naivety of the questions that is enlightening and inspires the next novel idea? Oh, absolutely. I, I think, you know, a very, very mundane questions. At the, at the beginning, I said, oh, what a stupid question. But when you think about it, it's not that stupid, you know. And uh, so I, 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 I'm really open to the question. I don't think, I don't consider any question to be stupid 
questions. But uh, so I, I, I do enjoy the the interaction with with either students or colleagues to to have these kinds of conversations. That was a part of the fun of the job. <laughs> That's a good note to leave it on. There's never, a, there really isn't ever a daft question. It could be the daft question that is the next big thing uh, yeah. that comes out. So again, Wa and everyone who's watching and listening, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. I look forward to the English good dinner when I see you next. I look forward to uh, finding it for you. Okay, good. All right, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the dash microscopists.